Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, we have heard the words of Your Son, our Savior Jesus, this day. Enlighten our hearts that we might lay hold of this truth, that we might know that He is at work in us, and that You would reveal to us more and more Your love for us. Reveal in us the work of Your promises to change us and to renew us. And continually, O Lord, send us forth to make our Lord Jesus known, to make Your goodness and Your mercy known, to make Your forgiveness and the redemption of this world through Jesus Christ known. And it is through that very same Jesus Christ that we do pray. Amen. So on Friday, I was working around the church doing some vacuuming and realized the vacuum wasn't working very well, so I had to disassemble it to clean out a clog from it. I've done this a few times. I always hate being able to notice those things when I'm cleaning, like the vacuum's not working and it goes back to years of working in retail and people complaining about vacuums not working and me being the only one taking the time to change the vacuum bag so that it will actually be able to suck up dirt again because those bags do get full or the canisters get full. But this one had a clog in the, in the pipeway, in the tubing, and so I had to disassemble it and push that out. But in the process of working with it, at some point, somehow, the little hinge part snapped on me and snapped my finger and ripped off a little chunk of my pinky. Needless to say, it's been painful for the last few days. In the process, I've had to keep cleaning my finger off, keep cleaning this little wound off that just is a nice little open wound on my finger. At first, when I cleaned it, it wasn't that big a deal. There wasn't much there. It just all, it just kind of, the peroxide just kind of went on it and it just kind of ran off, it fizzed a tiny bit and then was fine. But then last night, when I went to go clean it again, I sat there and poured my hydrogen peroxide on, on there and it started fizzing. And then it kept fizzing. And then I could suddenly start feeling pain down deep in my muscle, deep in the flesh of my pinky. And so I kept doing the peroxide at that point, just cleaning it and cleaning it and cleaning it until that pain went away. Because I guess a little bit of an infection had set in. That there's a little bit of bacteria in there that's being driven out by that peroxide. That it's cleansing the wound in order that it could properly heal. And what we have in our text today is a lot of wound cleansing occurring as we hear these words of Jesus. We hear hard words coming from Him. I mean, you've got to enjoy the way that our Gospel reading ends today. It doesn't really end on a note of promise. It ends on a note of, well, if you don't exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you don't get to enter into new life. You don't get to enter into the kingdom of heaven unless you exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. It doesn't end on a happy note, so to speak. Until we dig into the text, until we start to lay hold of what is happening in this text and what the Beatitudes are about. Last week we heard about the Beatitudes. And now we're digging on into some more of the Sermon on the Mount. And in hearing about those Beatitudes, we heard about the blessedness of God being poured upon us, being given to us 
That each of those areas of blessing, the poor in spirit, the meek, the mourning, the hungry, that those are not ways to earn God's blessing, but those are the places where God's blessing is discovered for us. For He has placed blessing that as we find ourselves in those areas, we can discover that God is at work in us. And that all of those aspects that are mentioned in those Beatitudes are part of the Christian life. And now Jesus continues moving forward. He explains the blessedness of being in the kingdom. And that blessedness does not always look like what the world wants it to look like. That blessedness is found in hardship. It is found in suffering. And here Jesus now shifts gears to continue speaking of where we are to find our life. And what we discover is that as Jesus commands us to go be salt, as He commands us to go be light, that our only hope in order to be that is for there to be one who exceeds the Pharisees for us. That our only hope to be this salt and light that we are intended to be in this world is for there to be one who exceeds the Pharisees' righteousness on our behalf. And that is what Jesus is driving us toward this day. Is that we need something outside of us. That just as I, myself, can't get rid of that infection, can't get rid of that bit of bacteria, per se, that I need something from outside to begin driving that out so that my body can then do what it was made to do. That that little bit of hydrogen peroxide becomes the the stimulus for my body to kick into gear in its healing process in a way. But that hydrogen peroxide is from the outside. It's something that is not part of me bringing healing, bringing cleansing. And that is what Jesus is for us, that He becomes that one who brings that healing and that cleansing that enables us to then move forward as the salt of the earth, as the light of the world. In order for us to understand how we get to be those things, we need to understand a little bit about Jesus' metaphors here. The salt and the light. You are the salt of the earth. It's amazing that that's just such a short phrase. You are the salt of the earth. And we have no clue exactly what Jesus is telling us about salt. About how we are to be salt. But nonetheless, in the vernacular, in our just common English language, to be someone who is the salt of the earth is to be a good, hard-working, honest individual. To be someone who is committed to His Word and cares about His community. That is, to be the salt of the earth in our modern context. And we often think of rural folk as being the salt of the earth, I I feel like. That it's those people who have that community, who have grown up with traditions, who have grown up being taught and trained of how to be honest, of how to be hardworking, of how to go out into the world and bring forth from the world, bring forth from the earth a livelihood. So in my mind, when I think of people who are the salt of the earth, I tend to think of rural folk. People who live outside the big cities. People who have a certain amount of dependence upon themselves with regard to producing what they need. But also depend upon their broader community around them. That there's people in that community that they don't really like, but they depend on them nonetheless. That's the salt of the earth kind of people in our modern day. But here... What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? Salt has 
a lot of uses in the Bible. It's both negative and positive. On the positive side of things, we think of salt as adding flavor. It's a seasoning. It enhances the flavor of our food. It's also something used for cleansing. That it would be used to help drive out infection, to drive out germs. It can also be used as a fertilizer in the ancient world. That sometimes salt would be cast into the dirt to help it produce better. It's also, of course, with regard to that, preserve, to that cleansing nature, is a preservative. People would soak things in salt. They would cover their meat in salt. They would rub salt into it in order to preserve it because that salt had that cleansing ability as a preservative. It would drive out the germs, drive out the putrefaction and slow the decay of things. And so it has that preservative ability as well as a cleansing ability. But too much salt is destructive. You think of salting the earth. That is to cover an area with salt in such a way that it kills everything because it's such a stringent cleanser that it will destroy everything if too much is used. And so... Sometimes it could be used as a way of destroying an area of land to keep it from being fertile anymore, even though it could be used as a fertilizer. Too much would damage the dirt and keep it from growing for a season. And so salt could be negative and positive, that it flavors, preserves, and cleanses, but it can also destroy. It can tear down and break down things. And I don't know which of those meanings Jesus intends here. I think in some ways he probably intends a bit of all of them. Especially when we think of this salt of the earth being parallel with the light of the world. Because light also has a bit of a negative and positive connotation. We tend to think of light only in the positive. Because after all, light makes things known, doesn't it? It allows us to see where we're going to know what's around us. We think of it as revealing what is in the darkness as it makes things known. That we get to see that there's a stool there so that we don't stub our toe. We can see that there's a chair there so we don't whack our knee. We can see that there's something round on the ground so we don't step on it and slide up and land on our backsides. So light is positive in the fact that it makes that world known to us. It reveals what is in the darkness. But something that's a bit more negative is the idea that it drives that darkness away. It pushes the dark back. Think about Jesus coming into this world. He is the light of the world and He is the one who drives the darkness away because the darkness could not overcome Him. That's kind of a negative sense to what light does. That it doesn't just make things known and reveal what's in the darkness, but it drives that very darkness away from itself. And again, all of that is rolled into Jesus saying, be the light of the world. And I think that goes alongside that salt Metaphor To be the salt of the earth means that, yes, sometimes you're flavoring things. St. Paul speaks of us letting our words be seasoned with salt so that you know how to answer each person. So you use salt wisely. That it can be a preservative to take something that is good and to purify it. To cleanse it. To keep it from becoming worse. But it also has a destroying nature to it. That is, it is preserving. It is destroying something within that thing that needs to be destroyed. That as salt is being applied to us, it is driving out that which would be against it. That as we bring the salt of the Word upon our own lives, 
It destroys the wickedness within, just as the light of the Word drives out the darkness within. We have a piece of ourselves that does need to be put to death, that needs to be destroyed. And so when that comes to us, it will push that away from us. But then as we go out and act as salt and light, it's going to have that effect in other people's lives. That as we do the good works that God sets before us and share His Word and speak of His Word and speak of His truth, Sometimes it will cleanse and preserve someone, but other times it may bring a destructive effect into them because they are clinging so much to that which needs to be destroyed. That we continue to speak the words of God in truth and love, but sometimes that truth and love, no matter how kindly we say it, brings a destructive force to it because people are so clung, clinging to that which needs to be done away with. That happens in our own lives as we cling to personal sins as the Word continues to impact us and drive us down. That our conscience becomes a place of struggle against the sins that we see existing in our lives and sometimes we want to cling to those sins and not let go of them. But we must, lest we be destroyed, lest our faith be damaged by the fact that we are clinging to that which is evil while the salt is trying to cleanse us. Just as the light shines down upon us to reveal the darkness within and begin driving it out. If we run into that darkness, then we are running from the light. We are straying from the light. We are choosing that which God wants to drive away from us and drive out of us over God Himself. And that's where our being salt and light means that that salt and light must be applied to us in equal measures. The salt and the light must come upon us It must bring its cleansing and its destructive power to our old natures and drive those things out so that we could then be that true salt that brings flavor, that brings preservation to the world, that brings cleansing out into the world, that we can then be that light that shines into darkness, making known the work of God in Jesus Christ, that we let our light shine before others so that they'll see our good works, see our good deeds, see the work that we are doing. We don't cover it up. We don't cling to the dark. We don't cling to that which the salt is trying to cleanse or even to destroy in us. Because when we do that, then people will not see the good works of God. They will see our works, whether they be good or for ill. That makes me think of what was happening with Josiah in the Old Testament that he has started to repair the temple. His grandfather Manasseh was the most wicked king known between Israel and Judah. He set up more idols. He set up more opportunities for idolatry with high places and even setting up various kinds of idols in the very temple of God. Previous kings had not put idols inside the temple grounds themselves, but here comes Manasseh. And he sets up idols everywhere. In a way, he was a great reformer of Israel because he was reforming the worship of God to worship other idols. So not all reform is good. Just because someone comes to reform doesn't mean they have good things in mind. Manasseh did wicked and evil things. And so here comes Josiah, his eight-year-old son, his eight-year-old grandson, who steps in shortly, just a couple of years after Manasseh has died, and Manasseh ruled for 55 years. But something happened in Manasseh's life. He got dragged into captivity. And in captivity, he had a change of heart. And he came back to Jerusalem after being in Babylon for I don't know how long or at what point in his life this happened. And he actually changed. He quit worshiping false idols. 
He began disposing of these idols and taking them and removing them, but he didn't destroy them. He left the high places, but the people began worshiping Yahweh there. He didn't deal with the fact that they shouldn't be worshiping Yahweh at the high places. They should be worshiping Yahweh at the temple. He didn't do everything that needed to be done as salt and light. And so when Manasseh's son, Ammon, took the throne, he re-implemented everything he had grown up with. He reintroduced all the idolatry, all the idol worship. All the Asherah poles. He brought everything back that Manasseh had begun to do away with because that's what Ammon grew up with. He grew up with all of that idolatry, seeing his father cast his sons into fire to kill them. He saw the wickedness of Manasseh and never understood the change that came over him after he was dragged into captivity. But Josiah saw some of that too. Josiah was six years old when his grandfather died. He had seen some of the change that occurred in Manasseh's life, and I think some of that comes out in, Mas- in Josiah. Because he acts. At 16 years old, after eight years of reigning, he begins enacting reforms, begins pushing back against everything that's been going on under his father and through most of his grandfather's reign. And he begins throwing down those high places. He removes and destroys the idols, and then he works on repairing the temple. And in the process of repairing that temple, he finds his workers find a book. I should say he doesn't find it, but his workers find a book. Hilkiah the high priest finds the book of the law. And what exactly that means, we're not sure. Some people say it only refers to just simply the book of Deuteronomy. Others say, and I tend to agree more with them, that they found the entirety of the book of law, the law and promise, the whole Torah, all five books of Moses that had been deposited in the temple, that had been kept sitting there next to the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark had been lost, and the Word that was there stored in the Holy of Holies had gotten lost in the temple. And they found it, and they began rereading it and relearning it. And Shaphan read it, and he brought it to the king and told him, Hilkiah found the book of the law, and he began reading it to him. And what does Josiah do? He repents. He tears his clothes and collapses in tears at the terror that is coming upon Israel because of their disobedience. And he goes out and says, What can we do? to love God? What can we do to repent? What can we do to worship God properly in order to avoid these things happening? Everything started with his repentance. Him hearing the law and being driven to repentance and changing what had been going on. He entered into that true nature that God had given to him. And he acted with love and obedience. He began fulfilling the law of worship by desiring to fix it, to drive out the wickedness that had come into the temple. The Spirit was at work in him, making him to be salt and light, for he was having to destroy the wickedness in the kingdom of Israel, in the kingdom of Judah, the wickedness in his own life. And then to go forth and to proclaim who Yahweh was, to proclaim the promises and the law of Yahweh, the commandment and the promise that we are called to obey and then called to receive, we are called to receive and then obey, we are called to work and live in the life that God gives us, the nature that He places upon us, and that is what we do as salt and light, as we lay hold of the new nature that God has given us. That He applied salt and light to us in Jesus Himself, and thus sends us forth as salt and light into the earth and into the world. And it's only as we embrace that new nature that God has given us that we can act as salt and light. We pursue what God has turned us into, not avoiding the implications of His call. 
which begins to be worked out in all of our callings and our vocations. Because that is where God is revealing Himself to the world, in our relationships, our friends, our marriages, our jobs, everywhere. That there is some kind of relationship with another human is a place where God is at work as salt and light through you and through me. And how do we show ourselves as salt and light? And how do we apply salt and light? We live the new life. We live the new life that God has given us according to His commandments. He gave us life that we might then live in this world. And in our living in this world, we work and do the works of God. We believe that Christ is Messiah, confessing our need and then in turn living according to the commandments that God has given to us. And that living according to His commandments is worked out there in our daily lives, our day in and our day outs. We are given plenty of opportunities to continually break God's laws. But we are given plenty of opportunities to obey them in those relationships. And that is where God is at work making us salt and light as we learn to walk in that light and to walk in obedience. Then we will become ones who are salt and light before the world. But what of Jesus speaking of abolishing the law? Here He is talking about the entirety of the Torah. Of the Torah and the prophets. He says, I did not come to abolish the law or prophets. I don't come to throw out those things. To say that they are of no use. To say that they have no application in your life. I don't come to abolish, to destroy, to overthrow. But I come to fulfill them. I come to accomplish what is commanded in them. To fulfill. To bring to completion. To simply do that which is in them. Because heaven and earth will not pass away until everything is accomplished in the law. Now the second time that Jesus says the law in verse 18, He is still referring to the entirety of Scripture, to the Old Testament law and the prophets. Throughout the Gospels, we hear Jesus quote from the prophets. He quotes from Psalms and He refers to them as, Is it not written in your law? This, He does it quite often and so law is shorthand for everything too. That He is here to accomplish everything written about Him. Everything. Law and promise have been written down in the Old Testament about Him. And He comes to accomplish all of those things on our behalf. So that He can then be that yes and amen to God's commandments. To God's promises. For us. And so Jesus steps forward to fulfill all that is written in the law. And that is why He will then say, whoever relaxes one of these laws and teaches others to relax them, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The law is so important that we must cling to it and understand it and recognize that it applies to us down to this day. That's why we still talk about the Ten Commandments and talk about the moral law. That we can recognize that there are aspects of the Torah that don't have an act, that don't call for our obedience today because they were part and parcel of being in a theocratic kingdom under Yahweh there in Israel for a time. But that the moral law exceeds all of the ceremonial and judicial laws of Israel. The moral law applies to all people for that is the law written in our very hearts. And thus, anything within that greater law, the moral law, must be kept That all the law is summed up in 
those moral commandments. And then all of the law is summed up in what we said earlier, that you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is all of the law and the prophets boiled down to two simple commandments that we understand by understanding the commandments. That to love God with all of our heart is to actually work toward obedience to God. That love is law. Love is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ forgives you of all of your sins and restores you into right relation with the Father. That Christ died that you would be forgiven and reconciled to the Father. That is the gospel. He accomplishes that by loving the Lord his God with all of his heart, with all of his mind, with all of his being and his strength. Jesus accomplishes our forgiveness by fulfilling all of the law, by doing the law, by doing that which we could never do, which is why he says we must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees to drive us to despair. That we can look at those Pharisees who are so outwardly righteous, who seem to do all the right things, who seem to do all the right laws, but they are hypocrites because they don't love God. Therefore, they actually aren't doing the law. Outwardly, they have righteousness, but inwardly, they are dead. And so Jesus says our righteousness must exceed all of that outward righteousness that the Pharisees have, that even what the Pharisees have isn't good enough. There must be something greater that must be done in combination with what the Pharisees are already striving to do. And that is where... We must despair because we can never exceed that outward righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's why it is Jesus who must do that for us. Jesus becomes the one who accomplishes all that outward righteousness. He does all the right things in all the right ways, but He does all the right things in all the right ways with the right kind of heart. He does it with a heart that loves God, that is poured out to the Father, and then pouring its himself out to the Father, He pours Himself out for the good of others. Because that good that He is commanded to do is commanded by God. Love is the law defined by the law. And law is defined by God who is love. And Jesus accomplishes all of that for us by loving God perfectly and by loving man perfectly and doing all that the law commanded Him to do in light of that love for God and man. And so the Pharisees failed at true righteousness because they never kept the law because they reworked the laws to enable them to keep it. They left out love as the basis for their obedience. Instead, inserted their self-love. That they kept it in order to earn salvation. They kept it in order to look good. That is not what Jesus does. And so His righteousness exceeds the Pharisees. And then He brings that righteousness to bear upon us as salt and light, that we would be changed into salt and light. And then it all comes together that as Jesus tells us to despair at our lack of righteousness, He then applies righteousness to us that He has in and of Himself and by His good deeds. And so He sends us forth, being our only hope, being the only one who accomplishes that which which the Pharisees did, and goes far, far beyond them, that He enters into not just a quantity of greater law-keeping and greater righteousness, but Jesus enters into a whole new quality of righteousness for us. 
And he brings that righteousness, that new type of righteousness, that new quality of righteousness that man has never had into our lives. And through that, Christ will drive us out of ourselves and into Himself. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount is Him magnifying the law. He doesn't change the law. He brings out its fuller implications. He puts a magnifying glass on all of the law and then applies it to us to show us that we cannot achieve any kind of righteousness on our own. He doesn't add to it, but He reveals the full depths of how we cannot keep it. He reveals the full depths of our need for Him to be that true righteousness for us. And so let Christ drive you away from yourself this day. Let His salt and His light come and cleanse you and burn away that which is displeasing to the Lord. But as that cleansing is occurring, there is a healing, a redemption, a renewal that is being applied also. That as the old is driven out, a new is placed inside of you this day. And so receive that salt and light from the Lord, that you too would be salt and light for Him in the world and bring His salt and light to others who need it. That as you need it, you send it forth. As you receive it, you give it out. And Jesus has accomplished that for us. That He is our true salt and light that exceeds the Pharisees' righteousness on our behalf. And thus, we become salt and light for His sake because He is it for us this day. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.